Ah, sweet land of liberty. Our founding fathers not only pledged, but gave their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honor to obtain our God-given liberty. Now it's our turn. Liberty can only thrive if it's alive in the hearts of a freedom-loving people. I'm Dan Matthews, and I'm pleased to welcome you to Freedom's Ring. Here's our host and constitutional lawyer and minister, Alan Reinach. Well, our topic today is government funding of religion, a topic that has been a mainstay of Supreme Court cases over the last several decades, but much less so uh, in in my career, a much uh, less significant issue. Although the day I was admitted to the Supreme Court was the day one of the last major cases was argued, a case called Mitchell against Helms. But there's a new case before the court that implicates <laughs> these issues, and uh, very happy to have uh, with us here on Freedom's Ring today, my friend, law professor Alan Brownstein from University of California at Davis Law School. Alan, welcome back to Freedom's Ring. Thanks, Alan. Good to talk to you again. So, without getting into the nuances of the actual case that the Supreme Court's going to hear, uh, I wanted to to help our listeners understand more what's at stake when it comes to government funding of religion and why we have this constitutional tradition that uh, puts brakes on the government just handing out money directly to churches. Uh, well, it's a good question, Alan, and because this issue hasn't been raised before the court for quite some time, uh, I think people uh, kind of forget what the basis is for the concern about uh, government funding of religious institutions. Uh, and there really are a host of issues and concerns uh, that suggest that we should be particularly wary of government schemes that subsidize or fund religious institutions or religious activities. And probably, you know, one of the first concerns is that whatever the government funds, the government controls. Ah, the strings that strangle. Right. Yeah, he who pays the piper calls the tune. He's got the gold, makes the rules. We're full of it today. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, it's clear that one of the first steps that the government takes to impose regulations on religious institutions and activities is to say, uh, well, we give you subsidies, we give support to institutions, and anyone who takes our funding has to accept the conditions that we impose on that funding. Well, and, and if, if you take a step back and think about it, we certainly expect the government to hold accountable those individuals or organizations that it funds. If you're going to give money, uh, there's a certain amount of accountability that's got to come with that. That's right. If the money is being used to support secular purposes and goals, um, and a religious institution applies for those funds, it would be expected to use the money in accordance with the government's objectives. The problem is doing that might require the religious organization to undercut or subvert its religious commitments. Uh, and that's where the rubber hits the road. Um, you can't have the kind of independence from government interference and control 
that we want religious institutions to be able to assert, and at the same time argue that we want these institutions to receive government financial support and subsidies. So someone said to me earlier this week in a discussion about the Supreme Court case that the linkage between, uh, well, if, if we don't take your money, you can't tell us what to do, is long gone. Do you agree with that? No, I don't. Uh, I think uh, they, uh, you can see it in you know, bills that are proposed today and in executive orders. Um, it's almost always the initial step for the government's asserting control over any kind of entity uh, is to tie the control to the government subsidies of that institution. Um, but, I, you know, I don't want to suggest that this vulnerability to control is the only problem with government subsidies of religious institutions. It's only one of many. You know, a second concern is that even if you escape overt control, religious institutions become dependent on government. They know what the source uh, of their funding is, and that will necessarily chill their willingness to express their prophetic voice and be a critic of the government. You can't be a critic and a supplicant at the same time. Uh, if you're dependent on the government for support, for the funding that you need to operate your institutions, you will be less likely to bite the hand that feeds you. That's exactly the expression that was coming to my mind. You can't bite the hand that feeds you. Or you can, but... Uh, uh, you do it at your peril. At your peril. That's true. That's true. And the prophetic function of the church, from my, you know, my perspective as a Protestant and as a Seventh-day Adventist, the prophetic function is very, very important. It is for, for many religions. Sure. Uh, and, you know, we rely on religious institutions to be a moral check on government abuses. That's one of the great uh, virtues of having religious freedom in our society, that you have these independently derived values and voices that can measure and monitor uh, uh, and respond to government abuses of government power. And you don't want to do anything that will undermine the independence of religious institutions and dependency on government support will certainly do that. You know, I think there's another aspect of this also where if an institution is getting funding from the government, so now it's very responsive to what the government's policies and needs are instead of being a critic, but at the same token, that insulates the institution from accountability to its own constituents if they're not the ones footing the bill. That's right. And that can lessen the support uh, and viability of the institution within its own community. Uh, you know, Madison said that uh, 200 years ago. Uh, he said if uh, government subsidizes religion, what you end up with is pride and indolence in the clergy, ignorance and servility in the laity, and in both superstition, bigotry, and persecution is the ultimate result. And, you know, uh, the irony, the, the interesting thing, historically, the state of the clergy 
at the time of the founding of America was appalling. And after the disestablishment of the churches, after the ministers were no longer funded by tax dollars, but they actually had to work for a living, the quality of ministry and the quality of religion in America, we had a, we had a religious revival that came out of that, the Second Great Awakening. That's right. And, you know, on a personal basis, when you have a stake in something, when you've contributed to it, uh, that connects you to the institution. Uh, you'll be much more concerned about the institution's operation. You'll pay more attention. Uh, it's a more meaningful relationship. If you can sit back and let someone else or the government provide all the resources that the institution needs, you become lax in your relationship with that institution. Well, and, look at Europe. You have government-funded churches that are empty. Right, right. That's a great example. Um, you know, another concern arises with government support uh, of religious institutions, and this is a little more abstract and indirect, but it's still pretty important, that you know, the argument in favor for religious liberty, for religious freedom, is that there is something distinctive about religion and the role that it plays in human lives. Uh, religion isn't like other belief systems. It isn't like other activities. It's special. Um, but when people argue that the government should fund religious institutions, what they say repeatedly, and what the court says repeatedly, is, well, these religious institutions aren't any different than any other kind of institution. They're no different than secular institutions. And therefore, if the government can fund a private secular institution, why shouldn't it be able to provide for a private religious institution the same funding scheme? And the problem with that argument is that it suggests that there's no difference between religious institutions and secular institutions, that they should be treated the same way. But once you make that argument for funding purposes, you shouldn't be surprised when other people are going to make the same argument with regard to religious exemptions and religious accommodations. They will ask, why should the religious individual and institution be freed from the obligation to obey a law that everyone else has to obey? If secular people have to obey the law, religious people have to obey it as well. So this argument about treating religious institutions just like secular institutions with regard to the eligibility of funding, that's an argument that fundamentally undermines the argument that's made to support religious liberty, religious freedom, exemptions and accommodations from laws that unreasonably interfere with religious liberty. Well, and, and frankly, it's that perspective that informs my view of the case pending before the Supreme Court right now, which involves some kind of direct government funding for a church and its school. I'm very concerned um, that we're going to compromise our claim to religious exemptions and protection, because in this, as the culture is shifting uh, in line with the sexual revolution, more and more the traditional religious views of marriage and sexuality are a countercultural view, and it's causing pressures on various religious institutions here in California, but I'm sure California is not alone. 
and we're going to see these kinds of pressures increasing. Uh, but these this idea that, oh, we treat the religious institutions the same as everybody else uh, for funding purposes, for regulatory purposes, that's really going to be dangerous when the churches uh, and, and their institutions are really countercultural and out of harmony with the mainstream. I, I think that's absolutely right. Uh, and that's the problem. These you know, funding schemes are very tempting. Um, the government offers resources, sometimes without any immediate strings. Uh, you know, the funding arrangements don't seem to be related to any of the uh, concerns the religious institution might have uh, about government interference with its activities. But incrementally, the religious institution's dependence on uh, government increases. The three pence becomes $300, $3,000, a significant percentage of the religious institution's budget. And all of a sudden, the institution discovers uh, that its freedom from government interference and regulation has been compromised. Well, we're in that position in California where it looks like in the near future, religious colleges and universities may lose access to their students having uh, state financial aid. And that would be a huge financial hit for religious institutions that have frankly become dependent on those funding streams. And we certainly don't know what the future holds, but it's not so easy to go cold turkey off of uh, the addiction of government funding. I mean, and, you know, to be fair, I mean, I understand the predicament that religious organizations are in. We are in a society where the government subsidizes and contributes to so many kinds of private institutions that it's very difficult to refuse government to refuse support. Government support. Alan, you know, we're out of time. Our guest today, Professor Alan Brownstein, we've been talking about uh, the reasons why government funding of religion is not such a great idea. Alan, thanks so much for being with us on Freedom's Ring today. Always good to talk to you, Alan. And as we close, we want to remind listeners, freedom is not free. Be informed. Get involved. This has been Freedom's Ring. I'm your host, Alan Reinach. Until next week, let freedom ring. <laughs>